This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS Radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there, too. Welcome to Hits Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. I am back today with Pete Stevens. We just did an episode just recently with Pete. We did the first episode. And uh, at the end of that episode, we got kind of ran out a little bit of time. So invited Pete to come back. So uh, part two, if you haven't listened to part one, maybe uh, scroll back before you listen to this one and check out uh, Pete Stevens' interview part one just an episode or two ago. And uh, catch up on that one before you listen to this one. Uh, and uh, we'll continue on. So Pete, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Getting ready for a nice uh, long vacation and um, looking forward to retirement in about six months. There you go. And uh, we talked to, at the beginning of uh, part one with you, we did kind of your background, but in a nutshell, uh, you've been a, a cop for 30, 30 years and handled four or five different dogs, right? So you've been Correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I've been, uh, been on the, within law enforcement for a little over 31 years and handled four different dogs, uh, single purpose patrol dog, a single-purpose narc dog, a dual-purpose patrol narc dog, and now I'm on my fourth dog, which is a, a single-purpose uh, narc dog as well. Uh, went from Dutch Shepherd, Lab, Malinois to Lab. So kind of doing the yin and yang yeah. portion of it. <laughs> I know the feeling. I went from uh, Mal to Mal to Dutchie to Lab and Lab. So I get the – it's uh, it's fun, though. They're all different. It's a it's, nice it's way fun. to slow things down as you get older. i tell you what, it, that's the truth. It's the absolute truth. <laughs> People laughed at me, and now uh, a lot of my old buddies wish they had my job, so I get it. You know? Exactly. Much easier on your back, except for this uh, this new lab of mine is 91 pounds. And yeah. He'll pull you all over the place, and uh, when he wants to play tug, he means it. <laughs> That's fun. Labs are fun. They're, I didn't realize how much fun they were until I really got into them. So, oh, they're a blast. I know you uh, probably just listened to your last one. Every time you do a, a podcast, for those people who have done it or listened to them, I know me, every time I listen to one, then I always think, oh, damn, I wish I would have said this or that. So let's start there. Uh, anything in the last podcast that we talked about that you want to revisit or uh, any point you want to make from the, from the last one? Well, one of the things I, I was, uh, li- when I listened to it was uh, we talked about training. You know, a lot of it was about training, and, and it got to thinking about it. And a lot of it's about a, a training mindset. There's kind of several little arms of that training mindset. Um, but training is, let, let's talk about one of the most important ones, especially for uh, my world, which is narcotics, our training records. Um, I, I, we talked about yesterday about things that we're doing well. I think that we are keeping our records much better than we used to. Um, I, I know that there was the mindset, you know, 20 years ago of being very adversarial towards uh, uh, defense counsel or anybody that would challenge your dog. And the idea from, I remember being explained to me was put a pile of paper on their desk and frustrate the hell out of them. Well, those days are gone. Um, You probably get in trouble by a judge if you hand over a stack of papers and expect a defense team to have to weed through it all. Um, It actually, it makes you look pretty bad. So I think with all the different, uh, the different technological advances we have in records keeping all the different programs are out there are pretty damn good it makes our job a lot easier to produce those records and keep track and actually really help us to see if there's anything that there's a weakness on you know 
are we doing enough proofing? Proofing is a big thing um, with packaging and different odors that you might come across. Proofing being, you know, teaching a dog that an associated odor is not the reward. It's actual target odors. What we want to do, a lot of it would be packaging and things like that. But having the, the proofing records to show that you have done that and also to show that you've done controlled negatives. Exactly. You Control negatives are probably the hardest thing for us to um, walk out of a room and say confidently, I got nothing. Yep. Yeah. A room with a lot of odor is very, is wonderful. It's simple. It's easy. But if you walk into a room and your dog does not give you any changes of behavior or even an area or a vehicle, do you have the cojones to say, I got nothing? Yep, exactly. I'm not saying that the source odor is not there. I'm not saying that there's not dope in the car. I'm just saying my dog didn't pick anything up. Yep. Either I didn't present it or it didn't trip his trigger for whatever reason, but it well, happens. And if you, if you take a, um, I kind of got geeked out on wind and how it affects odor. And sure. I, I like to like to, even though I'm in a fire hazardous area, uh, I like smoke grenades. Yeah. They're a great training tool to give people an idea of how wind carries odor. And there's little peaks and valleys. If you've ever looked at an odor plume or a, a plume from a fire, it's not a straight cone. We use that term scent cone because I think it's a lot easier for yeah. people to understand. Yeah. But there, it's not a straight edge. It's got peaks and valleys and holes. And your dog's nose may have just missed it slightly. Yep. It could have been just by an off by a centimeter. But still, they missed it. So yep. you're not saying that there's not target odor or train odor inside that vehicle. It's just that your dog didn't alert to it. Yeah. And uh, I steal this from uh, from Cameron, which is it's uh, your dog's job to convince you, yeah. not your job to convince the dog. Exactly, and that's what we see in Cameron. I did a we did an exercise in uh, Reno together where we just put out a bunch of blank cars, and I think people if they heard of the the uh, exercise, they probably thought, oh, the handlers were nothing. I think out of all of the training that we did for those couple days, after they did all the blanks and found out they were blanks, they learned more from that because we had, I can't remember how many cars we had, like 15 or 20. And, you know, the speed, that it was awesome. The first, first two, three cars, perfect patterns, nice speed, good presentation. By about the fourth car, it was slower. And by the time you get to about the eighth car, it was like the speed of dark, you know, the the handler would just be stuck, you know, thinking, you know, I'm at a seminar to find dope and my dog can't find anything. So it was a good learning uh, environment for them. Well, they need to ha be exposed to things like that to that, that odor's not always going to be there. And the more often you do something like that, uh, where I'm at, I'm being close to the border. It would not be uncommon for me to work a, a parking lot for a known drug car or load car vehicle drop-off. The city that I work in is literally, you know, seven miles from the border. So we have a trolley that uh, goes down to the border. Well, it would not be an uncommon thing for somebody to drive a load car across the border, go up to these trolley uh, stations and park the car and then get on the trolley and go back south. Well, I would work those, I would work those, um, those parking lots. And, you know, there's a couple hundred cars there. But when your dog, when my dog would get into odor, We'd be walking that parking lot, and all of a sudden, boom, head up. Now we're pulling and head going side to side, and you're like, oh, yeah, we're, we're on this. The dog's pulling you towards it. All those cars that they passed and that they sniffed, were they wrong? No. 
they were right. There was nothing there. Yep. You know, so we we get that mindset of, well, my dog didn't find anything on five cars. Well, maybe there wasn't anything there. Yeah, he searched five cars well. So, Right. And they, he did what he, he or she, the dog, was supposed to do, which is, hey, it's uh, giving you uh, the changes in my behavior and a trained final response that uh, there's target odor here. Yeah, and I, I know you're a, a marker geek like I am and, a, you know, a, a behaviorist geek. Um, and that's where if you see some of the, you know, you've probably seen like with the dolphins, when they search an area and they come back, if there isn't anything, they do one signal. If there is something, they do another, and they're paid either way. And Cameron and I have had long discussions, and I've never done it, but we've talked about how I wonder if, you know, would that, would that be possible to do that with a, a detector dog? In my in my uh, civilian scent classes, um, on my controlled negatives or my blanks, before they leave the room, I have them reward the dog with a good boy yeah. or a good dog yeah. or a little pat on the way out, just letting the dog know that, okay, you were right. The search was and good. it also, yeah, your search was good, but also it does let the dog know that, Hey, you're not going to find it all the time, or it can be a uh, drive building, which yeah. is, uh, um, I'm going to work even harder on the next trip. Yep. Yeah. You know, so Interesting with, concept. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, but if we're doing it with dolphins and sea lions, exactly. I, I, <laughs> I think it's around the corner. I think it's coming. Um, I would love to, you know, take the time to to do something like that to see just how effective it can be and how um, how our community would accept it because you know we're we're kind of stubborn. Oh yeah, a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> uh, especially uh, I, I had a, a buddy of mine once at work say change is bad, um, and <clears throat> that's a real cop there. <laughs> it, it can be, yeah, it can be, um, it, it can be bad, but it also can be really, really yep. good oh, I agree. if we're changing things for the for the right reasons. And um, you know, kind of that lets us kind of go into uh, um, the caveat of, of changing things and we about changing our mindsets uh, when we train. Uh, in a couple of incidents uh, out here, uh, one in particular actually happened to me was uh during training and and where i'll go with that is our officer safety during our training exercises because we get into the mindset of hey i'm training yep uh i'm not i'm wearing my t-shirt that says you know whatever canine unit uh i got maybe maybe i've got my gun on maybe i've got a blue gun but the public does not know that you're in training mode the public sees a marked unit the public sees a law enforcement officer and if they need you they're going to approach you. You don't get to say, I'm in training mode. Exactly. That's a good point. You have to deal with it. And on more than one occasion, um, we've had to have, fortunately, we've had uh, uniformed officers or somebody in uniform uh, that was in full capable, uh, you know, vest, body camera, all that, able to handle that situation. But the situation that happened to me was well before body cameras. I was training with a group uh, of other outside uh, local agencies. Um, we were in, in an area uh, doing a canyon search. It was my turn to be the bad guy. We had just started training. It was dark. And I was stripped down to my T-shirt and my BDUs, my my boots, and I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to be a high find. So I was going to go climb up in a tree. I started doing my transient check and uh, I hear a very loud boom. It's definitely a shotgun blast. And it sounded like it was coming from the area where all of the vehicles were. And I'm thinking, oh, man, somebody just had an accidental yeah. discharge. <laughs> this is going to be interesting. Well, as I'm coming back up the hill to go, what the hell just happened? One of the other handlers is coming down the hill and yelling, hey, are you all right? I'm like, yeah, why? And he goes, some dude shooting at you. 
Oh, I had no idea I was being shot at, but apparently he had seen this person had seen our all of our marked units parked together in this parking lot. We were behind a secured gate at a yeah. park. Yeah, but he had seen us. Um, maybe had seen me down in the canyon and uh, took a shot. So <laughs> the other handlers from uh, uh, an agency. Now we're in a compl- we're in a different city. All of us yeah. are in a different city than what we're yeah. the cities we work in. Fortunately, our radios work. Uh, um, we can talk to each other. Yeah, we just by switching a couple of channels. Two guys go after him. They're both from the same agency. Um, the first guy to go after him actually had all of his gear on. The second guy had actually taken off his duty belt, put it on the front seat of the car because he was going to be the first handler to send his dog down. And for you know, officers or for safety reasons air quotes, we don't allow live weapons, which I get. But uh, um, that stop, when they finally caught up to the guy, uh, turned into a pursuit uh, and turned out into a shooting at the end of the crash. And I'll send you the picture of the crime scene, but it was a gunfight for, you know, anywhere between 30, 40 rounds were exchanged between the officers and the bad guys. Um, the guy who had his duty belt sitting on the front seat, thank God, carried a full-size 45 in his vest and was able to put rounds downrange, then realized he was out of ammo, jumped back into his car, grabbed his duty gun, and started firing. But where I'm going is, is things can go really bad really quick, and you have to be prepared. I'm guilty of this. I know that I have driven my marked unit wearing nothing more than a T-shirt and pair of jeans with a gun strapped to my hip and a badge hanging around my neck. That was really stupid because if, especially in this day and age uh, with a lot of our officers getting ambushed, we need to be able to get out and handle everything. And I'll give you a good specific incident. And this is on YouTube and I don't know the handler's name, but I believe it's Hawthorne PD. And this guy is a stud because he was ready. Um, He, I believe it was, uh, he was taking his dog to the vet on an off day. But had his uh, um, full kit on, body-worn camera, and a person decided it was uh, time to uh, commit suicide by cop. Rammed his car on the freeway. Got out, pointed a fake gun at him, and he uh, fired, protecting himself, thinking the gun was real. And um, there was no community outcry because of he had everything ready. Everything was there to show I did everything, he did everything by the book. And I, I, I commend that officer for being completely prepared. Had he not been, can you imagine what that would do? Yeah, and we, we do that, um, you know, on that, like we train in a lot of, as you do, uh, both for detector and patrol dogs, we train in a lot of abandoned buildings. Like we have a couple of gigantic abandoned buildings right now. It's not unusual for us to find a transient in that building. So while, you know, most of us won't have a gun, we always designate whoever the trainer is, whoever's putting the hides out, whoever's running the scenario, somebody that's running that scenario is the person who's got to have a gun with him and a radio. That way, at least, you know, if the rest of us are training our dogs and doing everything else and not not quite ready, at least we have one person who's ready to do something. Usually it ends up being more than that. We don't want to have a bunch of guns in a training environment, but that person that is running it will be the one who who checks, you know, to make sure whoever's the handler on the scene, you know, that's running it isn't going to have live ammo or anything. So we have some safety checks, but I think that's a, a really good point not to get caught up just because we know we're training uh, that, you know, we're still cops and we're still targets, especially 
you know, in this day and age, we're we're sitting ducks a lot of times. So I think that's a really good point. Well, and, and are we equipped for uh, the training as well? My, what I mean by that is, uh, do you have like a, an outer vest carrier or are you just wearing a plates or, or something that identifies you as law enforcement? Exactly. A raid jacket, something. Something. Uh, I was real impressed by one of my guys. Uh, he, he's actually, I think, our newest handler. And I was getting, I saw him get into his car and I was getting, and he started it up and he didn't put anything on and I was getting ready to go over and chew him a new one. And then I see him reach over to uh, his uh, his passenger seat and put on his plate carrier. It's got his name. It's got a camera on it yeah. and everything. And I'm like, okay, this guy, yeah. he, he's been listening. He's aware of what can happen. Yep. And I had never lived in the city that I worked in. I was always driving to and from. Uh, and I, how many times on my way home did I have to stop a DUI? Yeah. Where it was so blatant that for public safety, I... Yep. I couldn't pass it by. I just, I, there's no way yeah. you had to do something. So being prepared when, when we're at, at, at training is, is paramount and being, you know, knowing where you are in a different city, you know, and the dispatch know where you are, you know, are, are you logged on your CAD saying I'm, in, I'm training, but I'm in a different city. Like, I was in a different city today uh, doing a sniff for another agency. I had to let my dispatch know that that's where I was at. Yeah, that's a good point because, you know, like most of us, we have a lot of freedom where we're all over our metro area, like a lot of, a lot of handlers. And I'm definitely guilty of just going and doing it and meeting up with the handlers. But that's a, a real good point. I should should let radio know, you know, where I'm at just in case. And, and uh, well, and also, too, with, the, with body-worn cameras. Yep. Uh, body-worn cameras, I think, were um, a double-edged sword. Um, I think they're great evidence-wise. Um, I think where it kind of kind of bit everybody in the butt was – that uh, I don't think the public realize just how violent our profession is. Yeah. That, uh, that fighting is never, when you're fighting a suspect, it's never pretty. It's not a choreographed fight scene. It is primal. It's ugly. They're screaming and yelling. Uh, um, it's not smooth. I am, I don't look good. I'll tell you that. No, it's, and, and people aren't, I think if you've ever seen uh, uh, Dave Grossman talk, he talks about that we have the gift of violence and you know, we use it for the right way and bad guys use it for the wrong way. And then the other 95% of the world has no violence in their blood. So they don't understand it. They don't get it. They don't, they can't comprehend what they're seeing. So you're right. It, it's very, very ugly to them. It's very shocking. And they, and a lot of them don't like it. You know, a lot of them don't like what they see. So we've got to kind of clean things up a little bit just to make sure that we're not leaving the dog on, on uh, a bite for an abnormal uh, amount of time. We, we kind of talked about this on part one. We're having control, you know, having an e-collar just to make sure that you can um, recall your dog or get your dog off a bite if you, if you need to. I agree. And the, the long lift off, trying to get the dog off for a long period of time is definitely, it's, it's already affecting us and it could be something that could be very negative if, you know, if that continues, because uh, we could, you know, we go on about that, but that, you know, how to train a dog to bite harder and stuff is pretty similar to what you see when they're trying to get a dog off a bite. And, uh, you know, there, there needs to be a much better release on many, many handlers. I would agree with that totally. Especially when we talk to the public, I don't know if I remember a, a couple of years ago, maybe, uh, probably more than a couple of years, probably five years ago, there was a, an officer that was choking the dog off of a tennis ball, uh, during a, a detection search and it was being filmed. And for the unknown eye, it looks like the officer is being mean to the dog. 
But then, you know, I see the, the dog release the ball, the handler take the string and have the dog chase it and they run and go to the car. Well, there was a big outcry over, I can't believe they did that. And I think one of the best explanations uh, and descriptions of that was I heard, uh, heard on a video done by Michael Ellis. And Michael Ellis is a trainer out in Northern California, does civilian stuff, is big in the sport world and, and shoots them and, and those kinds of sports, but really articulated about how that's building up a dog's drive and desire to hold onto that ball and that he's fighting you to because he wants the ball so bad and they're going to fight for it even more the next time. He does a really good job on explaining that. I, maybe we could do a little bit better job of explaining how that kind of training works with dogs. I think when, when I do it with uh, teaching people about opposition uh, and how we use that opposition reflex to build up drive, they're like, oh, I get it. Now that makes sense. So if we take a little bit of time to explain what we're doing and why, why the dogs are doing it, I think maybe the public will have a little bit better understanding of us. And that's where we kind of go into uh, public relations, which we do a lot of demos. I, I'm, I'm sure you've done sure. hundreds of demos and I've done a yeah. hundred demos. And I always, you know, the big thrill was the dog uh, and the bite suit. Yep. Everybody just thought that was the bee's knees, but is that the only way that we want the public to perceive our dogs? Yeah. I, there's, there's a lot to that. I agree. You know, if we talk more about how we use them for protection and locating evidence and suspects technically are evidence. If you find a concealed suspect, you've, you know, yeah. now you've got everything you need. If we focus more on that as a locating tool instead of a use of force option, although they absolutely are, um, there's many levels that we can use them on. But as if we are more, focused on what the dog's capabilities are for to help us locating evidence. I, I loved doing uh, narc demos or even the article search. Yeah. Uh, I had a really uh, a good buddy of mine that was a, a arson investigator and um, was able to, he had a super fun, sweet lab and he put a little tiny drop of gasoline on one of the students feet. That was a, a class of like fifth graders. And they all were sitting down and the dog ran by and all of a sudden just sniffed that kid's shoe and the kids thought it was great. Um, that dog was a good dog for that, but you know, you're always risking some liability when you have interaction with a dog. But those are more along the lines of where I think we should be headed instead of the uh, um, mostly focusing on the apprehension side of things. Well, I, I can tell you that years back um, when I was still a patrol dog handler, we got to the point where we did not do apprehension stuff in demos anymore. And at first we thought, you know, somebody might complain and, and, you know, we thought we'd deal with it, but I can tell you that, you know, we just decided this is silly. We're, you know, why are we doing this? Cause the reason that I didn't like it is cause it was deteriorating our dog's behavior. We had, I mean, our, the, when I was there, our dogs released every time with a verbal out, I mean, solid a hundred percent, but dogs are like kids. So they knew when they're in front of a big crowd, they're not going to get corrected as much. And so it was, it was deteriorating a lot of behaviors because they, you know, we did so many of them. So we quit doing that and stood in front of them and we I always like very very social dogs so in a controlled way I would let just about everybody pet my dog which I know it's controversial but I'm telling you you know I, we had the right dogs for it if we didn't have every once in a while we have a dog that didn't like it he wasn't part of that but we we quit doing all of the apprehension stuff and I realized later that it's us who thinks that's cool what the public wants to know is the dog is what their name is where they came from that they live with us what they do and you know that kind of fun stuff. The 
the it goes back to almost like the violent part of it that isn't really what they're interested in that we are because that's what we do but we never ever got a negative complaint um about doing that and it sure made our demos a lot easier because then what we ended up doing is instead of sending the whole team so we could have a decoy and a person to keep the crowd back and everything else then we could send one maybe two handlers to a demo and everybody it spread out the wealth and no one was getting burnt out on demos and we'd spend more time standing there the interaction with the public uh was tenfold higher just by not having the bite work the dogs weren't as excited they weren't you know thinking they were going to be out doing bite work so most of the dogs would get a little bit bored just standing there and it made it made the dog look they may not like the police but they love our dogs exactly exactly you know they they love the dogs and as long as you know they'll they'll be the first ones to say hey uh, can we build you something or can we help you buy dog food or something similar to that they're that community support is something that is very important to, to us in our profession. But you mentioned something about having a, um, a decoy coming to your, your demos. And uh, I kind of wanted to spin off onto the decoying of, of our aspect of, of our jobs. And decoying is so important to what we do and having the right training to do it. I'm sure you've seen it, uh, and I know I have, and uh, I think everybody in, in our profession has seen the guy that will just stand out there in the Stay Puff suit and uh, um, just catch the, the bites and just stand there and give minimal agitation. But then you've got that guy who is uh, a, a, a great decoy with the personality and the acting ability, muzzle fighting. I mean, how, how difficult is it to get somebody to do a really good job on muzzle fighting? you know, how to build up a muzzle and let a dog really get empowered by wearing a muzzle. It's all on a decoy. And if we uh, don't get a chance to really try to improve our decoying skills, I've been to a couple of different decoy schools, uh, um, but that's something that I, the, the thing that I think that made me uh, a much better decoy is when I started getting involved in a local Schutzen club and they start demanding things of you. They call you the helper, but they start demanding perfection out of you because if you screw up, their dog screws up, and then they lose points. And I learned a lot more about targeting uh, um, and, and presentation of a bite area, bite, bite surface. That translated over into the bite suit where I started taking more frontal bites, um, being more confrontational. Like uh, we talked about the KMPV dogs on part one. Uh, not quite to that extent of that, <laughs> that long bite, but still um, being able to take a frontal bite safely, though. Yeah. Yep. Where you're not jamming up the dog. How many dogs get injured by poor decoy work? So if you get to get a chance to do some, some decoy work or take a class where you learn how to be a better decoy, it's going to make you a better handler because if you have a new decoy, you can tell them, hey, I need you to do this real fast or uh, uh, more agitation or get lower or you know, hey, you didn't present the bite bar correctly on that sleeve. And that's why the dog had a hard time getting its mouth around the barrel of the sleeve. So getting a chance to be a better decoy is a a paramount thing to the canine training itself because you've got the decoy, the handler, and then the trainer. And they've all got to be working as a team. Yeah, and our our agency, uh, they've kind of got away from it, but I think some other agencies do something similar. But we had a a, a 90-day training program. So if you wanted to go to any specialized unit, whether it's SWAT or canine or even the detective bureau, you had to get... uh, released from your district and you'd be there for 90 days. And when they came to canine, when I was the trainer in the patrol thing, uh, the patrol uh, unit, we didn't 
um, we didn't abuse them to abuse them, but we worked them very hard. And it was twofold. We would get brand new young decoys who were excited. But the other side of it was, is a guy can kind of BS you for a week or two weeks. But by the end of the third month of me telling them, get in the bite suit, take muzzle hits, do this, then you got to really see the people who both were passionate about it and were also had a good aptitude about being able to do it and were athletic and could start to read the dogs and help the dogs and stuff. And that, to me, it eliminated, um, if, if you got through that program and then later were selected to come to the unit, decoying was a big important part and it was a fun part of the job. No one ever argued about why do I have to put the suit on? It was, and I see that a lot when I, when I go to do uh, seminars, I see, uh, you know, I have to kind of encourage people. I need two more decoys up, you know, help people get in the suit. So I agree. There's a, there's a need there for maybe raising the bar a little bit. Well, one of the things I really can't stand is somebody get in the suit. If I have to say somebody get in the suit, we got a problem. Yeah, I agree. agree. We, we, we should be jumping in that suit and helping each other out. And enjoy and making, it and enjoy yeah, it. It's, it's a, to me, it's a kick. I, I've been doing it a long time and I absolutely love it. Well, I, I definitely feel it these days. Oh yeah. You know, I definitely, <laughs> I definitely, for some reason I bruise a lot easier. I'm not sure what that's all about. Even before there was the, when I first started um, putting on the bite suit back in the late nineties, uh, I was like, I'm, I'm not putting on any gauntlets. That's for oh, yeah. babies. And now, I'll tell you right now, if I could fit two or three gauntlets on, I'm doing it. Oh yeah, I'm not. I'm not proud now, but but definitely still like it. And I think you can, you know, a good decoy can make a dog look good or bad, and and a handler look good or bad if if you want to. So, it definitely. And um, also to spin off onto another thing, which is uh, teamwork and teamwork with the patrol teams, uh, of the regular standard patrol officer. Yeah. Uh, um, for my agency, um, we were citywide cars, and we still are. Um, but the patrol guys, they're the ones who are going to be doing the containment. Exactly. And if you work with them as a team, and if you get an apprehension, and you catch a bad guy. That's what we're about. We're catching bad guys. And I know that being on a perimeter is not sexy. It is boring. But you've got to teach the guys, uh, the officers out there, to get out of their cars, turn on their overhead lights, be a presence to keep that guy hunkered down. Because if they're the guy that's going to be sitting in their car, quote, on the perimeter while they're playing on their phone and not looking for the suspect, uh, uh, you're going to have the suspects get out of your containment. And then maybe your maybe your dog will track them. Maybe they won't. But bad guys are going to get away. And if you are as a team and working with a, a search team, your ratio of catching bad guys is going to go up because you're going to be able to be focused on your dog. This is one of the things I learned from uh, Doug Roller and Mike Gooseby when I had to come down and teach a class was search team tactics. And I started um, employing that or deploying that when I, when I did my searches, I'd have my, my communications guy, um, my, a lot of times I was lucky. I had a, um, a sergeant with me. So I had a supervisor on scene and you've got guys that are, have your flank. And so you can move up and you can, send the dog out, have them search, down them, move forward. We can clear because dogs soften areas. They don't clear. People do. And as you go up and move, we, we started getting a lot more um, apprehensions by the perimeter because we were pushing the bad exactly. guys out. To the let me, let me jump in. I want to make a quick point here. Your agency, um, how, how many cops did you have? Uh, about 250. Okay. And then there was other agencies around there that you would work with 
that had dogs also, maybe smaller, even Correct. smaller. My even point, smaller ones. Here's my point, is that when you worked with those other agencies and after you had learned those tactics from uh, Roller and Goosby out of LAPD, um, and I imagine the other smaller agencies, they also picked up some of those tactics. You guys figured out a way probably, so even the smaller agencies could put together a search team and go out and do that. Even if it's a three-person search team, it helps you stay focused exactly. on your dog. Um, because Yeah, so here's my, my point that I'm just trying to make is that I see a lot of times about how these this works good for LA because they have 10,000 cops. You had 250 and it worked good for you. So to me, good tactics are good tactics. And if well, you, the agency if you, just to the north of us is 50 cops, and they do just as well. Because they, they'll, they'll put together the resources they need to do the job. So I don't like the excuse of, it's a small agency, so they can't do it right. Either, you know, good tactics are always good tactics and muster up the resources, call another agency, call the county to, if they have an overlaying county, do something. And you can always, you know, hold the perimeter a little longer and get a few more bodies to do it correctly. So, And if you've, if you've done your homework, you should know the handlers and the agencies next to you. And uh, I always scanned the agencies with our radio system. We had the ability to scan the neighboring jurisdictions. And if I could hear them need more officers, I would just go over. I'd rise my dispatch. I'm headed yeah. over there yeah. because they need it. Because I, who, who is better on your search team? Another handler, right? I mean, I, I wish you could have every search team made up of all handlers because you're the guy who's probably not going to flinch if the dog comes up and bumps you or let the dog work by you. You're more comfortable. Or you might go, hey, did you see that, that little head check? And or on a proximity alert, and then everybody kind of starts to turn just a little bit because we all know how to read dog behavior, although you hope that they're watching their zones uh, where they're supposed to be going. But once you get that proximity alert, now we're starting to focus on a certain area. Yep. Good points. Very good points. You know, but those are th- something to do with the team prior to doing it live. Don't do it on a real deployment, on a real thing. Do some roll call training. Do um, we, we have uh, Every, we have training every two months with the PD that's everybody trains for a day. And maybe during your training cycle, do a two hour block. Show them this, this is what I, this is what I want you to do. Should there be uh, an apprehension? Uh, this is what I'm going to need you all to do. This is, uh, these are things uh, uh, I'm going to be controlling the dog. I need you guys to uh, move up with me. I, or I want you to stay back while I recall it when I recall the dog to me, those are things that we should be training with before it happens. And they need to have an understanding of it. I loved getting uh, the new cycle of trainees coming through and giving them a, a, a quick little, you know, this is how we clear a building with a dog. Yep. And it's you semantics, know, it. Pete, but when I would step off with new guys, after I told them all that, my, uh, what I always told them is when we find this guy. Yes. Cause we're going to find him. So when we find him, this is what we're going to do. Cause I didn't want them to be surprised when, you know, when it changed a little bit. So I always want to kind of set that mindset to him. <laughs> well, dogs, and it's funny that you say that because dogs go in the building, hoping to God he's there. Yeah. You know, they want it. And I think there's a lot of cops out there um, that <laughs> hope they're not. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's too bad. He got, he got away. We're just going to take the report and we'll, we'll make it to the end of shift. Uh, you know, I, uh, Back when, uh, you know, when law enforcement was fun, we would, would go out there and, you know, tr- and try to get get that bad guy. And 
I, I wish that mentality would come back of the, the teamwork and, hey, if we work together as a team, we can catch bad guys, serious bad guys, people that are out there hurting people and doing bad things. We can catch them if we work together. And I agree I agree with that. A roll call training is a great way to do it. Um, if you haven't put together a, a roll call training, if you send me an email, if you're listening to this and uh, you're interested, I have a, a very easy PowerPoint and it's a little bit uh, fundamental, but I'll, I'd send it to anybody and you just uh, put your own logos on it and you can take some of the information, but it just shows how to set a perimeter and how a dog works odor. And uh, I've given it to you know, quite a few different agencies over the year and they've modified it to fit their needs. Just an easy way to go in and do a 10-minute roll call training presentation and uh, seems to work out pretty good. So I'm happy to send that if you just shoot me an email. And if you don't mind us spinning into the detection side, I know we talked a lot about patrol. Yeah, let's, uh, let's knock out a quick detection idea. And so um, the last uh, years that I was on the, on the highway in uniform and I was pushing a black and white, uh, my focus was mostly on interdiction and, or, you know, uh, wall stops. Being where I, I'm located, it's just, let's be honest, it's a target-rich environment. It was not uncommon for me to do a traffic stop and look in the back seat and find a duffel bag and go, yeah. what's in there and have them say uh, 20 kilos of Coke. Yeah. It's, and it was legit. It was 20 yeah. kilos. Yeah. And it was just location is sure. everything. Sure. But one of the things that I learned over the years was, um, uh, and being a narcotics detective, I can say this, um, if your dog indicates on a vehicle or indicates somewhere in a, in a house and the narcotics guys don't find it. Go in there yourself <laughs> and point. find out why Good point. your dog gave you that change in behavior. M- more than once, more than twice, probably a couple of dozen times, um, it was because it was so well hidden. Yeah. And it was so, uh, I did a, a sniff with um, the uh, a three little federal agency for them during a, a search warrant. And my dog, uh, alerted on the back corner of a safe, not on the front of the safe, but on the back corner where it um, came up to the wall and they opened up the safe and they said, nothing's here. Well, I went over and looked around and um, I saw a little mark on the floor and it turned out that the safe was on wheels and it moved. There was a whole hidden room back there (laughs) with a bunch of dope in it. But it was, can you account for the space? And where I'm going with that is vehicles. So vehicle-wise, um, if your dog alerts, spend the time. If you have not taken an interdiction class, take one. There's a bunch of them out there. You can probably find some federal funding someplace to pay for it or maybe have them come out to you. I mean, Desert Snow is one. Uh, Detect Traps is another one. I know um, Eddie has one. Uh I think he was just on your on your podcast a couple of episodes ago. Um, and when you do these classes, you kind of start learning a, a really good system for searching. Yeah. And can you account for all the space? Because of the proximity I am to uh, um, the border, I get loads that are deeply concealed, frame rails, engine compartments, yeah. transmissions, yeah. things like that. Every once in a while, I'll find the mechanical ones with the actuators yeah, or the trunk yeah. latch um by the way if you put the wrong power source on a trunk latch and it actually is to the airbag it will set the airbag <laughs> off. so so you heard from a friend right <laughs> yeah, yeah so i've been told i, I could i can still hear now but yeah that was 
Yellow yellow wires are bad in cars. <laughs> That's good to know. <laughs> but if you can get um, some funding, I know that uh, Homeland Security Investigations has this thing called slot funding. And they're probably going to get pissed at me for putting it out yeah. there. But I know that slot funding is something that you can buy equipment with. And if you have somebody that's on an HSI task force, or if you work with them, or if you have somebody that's cross-designated as a task force officer with HSI, um, they have a funding source where you can buy equipment. And they bought us a um, an interdiction kit with a really nice camera, density meter. And I can't tell you how much stuff yeah. I found using that. Yeah. It's a great tool to have. The great the dog is great for telling you that there's odor there. Yeah. But we all know that odor travels in cars in funny ways. And while the dog might be alerting towards the, you know, on the bumper, let's say, and it's actually in the front seat. Yeah. You know, because of just the way the odor travels. Having the right tools to do it is a a really good thing to make your search successful, but account for the space. Well, here's, here's an idea too. When you talk about tools, know what your agency has, because um, I talked to some narcs in one of our, another agency here and we were, I was talking to them. They had a car and they just couldn't find the dope. They said the dogs hit on it. They had information. They were pretty sure it was a dope car and they just could not find it. And they are, there's a couple of federal agencies here that have some x-ray equipment, but they couldn't right. get a hold of those guys. So when they they said so we couldn't X-ray it we couldn't hold it any longer let it go, I said why didn't you call your bomb unit, and it was like, oh yeah I said all those guys carry <laughs> X-ray equipment in their car yeah I said and they'd be you, happy to come and yeah they would love that because it's yeah. something different exactly they'd be happy it, to come and X-ray the seats and everything else, so know your equipment know what know what everybody's got and, and all these all the other specialized units you know the fire department has uh, infrared stuff you know so I mean. Get, get them out of the, the recliner for the afternoon and have them come help you if they need to. So uh, know, whatever, know where you can get any other tools you need. And know the way that there's, uh, don't be afraid to go out there and write proposals for grants because the worst thing they're going to tell you is no. Yep. Good and point. if you keep going out there and hard charging and trying to improve your unit while you're there, doing the best you can to get more equipment for them, you know, do some fundraising, pancake breakfast, whatever it takes, to get the equipment that you guys need, then you're going to leave the unit better than when you got there. And that should be the idea. Uh, uh, if you needed to look at a lot of equipment, Pete, is there a thing, a seminar you could go to that has lots of equipment, lots of aisles and aisles of equipment. And I think there's one it's coming up in, uh, and could it be in year. Phoenix, Phoenix, uh, Phoenix hits canine.net or, uh, Come out and check there. We we'll have a uh, last year we or we had about a hundred vendors. We were scheduled to have about 110, 120 in uh, Phoenix. So all of those types of equipment, you know, we have. Well, and all the equipment that we're talking about, the the density meter and the scope, that's from a company called Sesco, and that's actually where I got the contact information. Was when I saw them at Hits. So so you can come and see it, see how it works, and the the great thing about talking to the vendor right there is their job is to sell it. So they already know, you know, talk to this federal agency, they'll help you with the money. And it doesn't matter on your for you who pays for it, uh, but they can they can help you with it. So hits canine.net. Um, we've got a lot of vendors listed on there. Check it out. We've got lots of uh, lots you know besides the classes, and we always do some interdiction stuff. So a lot of the stuff Pete and I have talked about tonight is going to be at hits just in in longer formats. So um, Pete, and the I, cool thing about that is people are not afraid to talk uh, uh, to you, even the instructors. Every one of them that I've ever approached has not, they've been so welcoming. They want to talk to you more. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll sit down and talk with you. 
Absolutely. You know, because we and we vet our instructors. Uh, one of the the things that's different about hits um, is that we pay to have our instructors come, and we pay for their hotel room, and we so we're paying them to be there to teach something. Even though a lot of the instructors actually have a product or a service to sell, we tell them they just can't sell it in the classroom. Our competitors, a lot of them, will tell the the, the instructors, "You can come to the event and pitch your wares in the classroom, but you got to pay to be there." You have to pay your own way. You got to pay for your hotel room. So, if you're the same person and you're getting paid by hits to be there, you're going to teach something. If you're ta- if now it's your own dime and you're in another classroom, you got to make up that money. So you're going to sell the product. And we just don't do infomercials in our classroom. So, well, you'll also do the, those people will stick around for the whole thing. So they'll be there for the, the entire they'll be there for the entire event. And even though they're not teaching a class, you'll see them sitting next to you in a class. Yep, they'll go to the classes, they're in the hallway, they're in the vendor area, they'll, they're having dinner. So we make them, you know, we've, we try to find the instructors who are super passionate, that want to help, and uh, I think we do a pretty pretty good vetting job on that. So it's a, it's a great environment to, to kind of pick people's brains. So Pete, I, I appreciate you jumping back on. I think there's a lot more good information here. Um, I know you're busy, but I appreciate the, the time. And I, I oh, pleasure to, to do it. it. Hopefully, um, it makes life a little easier for somebody so they don't have to learn it the hard way. Yep, just some good good uh, things to think about, and uh, always good to, always good talking to you. So I appreciate it, Pete. Thank you. Hey, you're quite welcome. Thanks, Jeff. If you're looking to make an investment in your canine career, come to Hits 2021. There's no substitute for the real thing. Whether you're a new handler who's looking to learn more about dog training or an experienced trainer who's looking for new training ideas and techniques, come to HITS 2021 where the investment is well worth the return. HITS 2021 will have more classes and more vendors who give away more free raffles and gifts and free cash than ever before. HITS is the world's largest canine seminar and is open to police officers and military members. Our experience makes the difference. You've been there, and we've been there too.